He's free as the breeze, he's always at ease He lives in the jungle and hangs by his knees As he swings through the trees without a trapeze In his BVD <laughs> Right, in our second segment, I think we're going to concentrate on uh, on good news And that usually involves science topics, but um, not completely We have good news on the legal front Surprise, surprise The NSA suffered a major blow last week when a federal judge ruled that its mass collection of domestic phone data, quote, almost certainly, unquote, violates the U.S. Constitution, setting up an eventual review of the program by the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. District Judge Richard Leon, who was appointed by George W. Bush, slammed the NSA's program as almost Orwellian and declared its record-keeping on virtually every phone call made in the U.S. a violation of the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on unreasonable searches. Leon said the government had no evidence that metadata collection actually stopped an imminent attack. You know, sometimes it's hard for this correspondent to believe that Barack Obama, who said all the right things when he was a candidate, is now on the wrong side of this issue, and Edward Snowden is being left hung out to dry. But apparently Obama may be giving this a rethink, in view of the fact that the leaders of the nation's biggest tech firms warned him in a lengthy meeting last week that NSA spying programs are damaging their reputations and could harm the broader economy. Cisco said it's seeing customers, especially those overseas, backing away from U.S.-branded technology after documents revealed that the NSA enlisted tech firms and also secretly tapped into their data hubs around the world. Other companies like IBM, AT&T, and Verizon are facing angry shareholders, some of whom have filed lawsuits demanding that the companies disclose their participation in NSA intelligence programs. Also in attendance this meeting were the chief executives of Apple, Netflix, and Twitter. Senior executives from Microsoft, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, and Zynga also came. Senior administration officials described the meeting with the executives, 15 in number, as constructive, not at all contentious. You know, we really can't say enough good things about the piece by Ryan Liza in the current issue of The New Yorker. We highly recommend that you peruse this piece. The hero of the article appears to be Senator Ron Wyden, Oregon Democrat, who put a question to uh, the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, last March. And, uh, well, when Clapper lied to him and the public, he was sort of bound by the rules of the game to uh, not blow the whistle on him. Luckily for the rest of us, Edward Snowden has come along to uh, show that some of these statements made were just lies, pure and simple. Now, according to McClatchy Blogs, a few days back, the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, should face consequences for lying to Congress, according to members of the House Judiciary Committee. Seven of the panel's members, including USA Patriot Act author Jim Sensenbrenner, Republican of Wisconsin, say the veteran intelligence official lied under oath to Congress and they're calling for an investigation into his testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee last March. In case you've forgotten, Clapper was asked then if the NSA had been collecting any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans, to which he replied, no, sir. Noted McClatchy blogs, his testimony, of course, proved to be false. Former defense contractor Edward Snowden revealed three months later that the NSA was hauling in massive databases of Americans' telephone and Internet data. The digital tidbits, or metadata, 
included the sender and recipient lines of an email, telephone numbers dialed, and the length of the call. Although Clapper later retracted his testimony and apologized for the error, there was little legal blowback. The House's seven panel members say Clapper's falsehoods should be punished. Edward Snowden, meanwhile, has written a letter to the Brazilian government commending it for its strong stand against U.S. spying. I think he's also thinking he might want to hang out in Brazil for a while since they have no extradition policy with the United States, and I'm sure it's a lot funner place to be than Moscow. Although in fairness to Moscow, when I was there a few years back, boy, that's a happening place. But probably less so for spies. Probably talk more about Ryan Liza's article in um, future installments of this program. Well, let's talk about some science stories. All right, here's some almost indisputably good news from Fremont, my hometown. Last month, federal wildlife officials, which is the part that's a little bit dodgy about this, announced a 50-year plan for the restoration of San Francisco Bay and other coastal wetlands. They say it's the biggest effort to save tidal marshes outside of the Florida Everglades. The $1.24 billion plan for the Bay and a patchwork of tidal marshes in northern and central California calls for projects along 500 miles of the state's coastline. Funding, it is said, will come from a mix of federal, state, and private sources. It's been noted that since the gold rush, 90% of the tidal marshes in the San Francisco Bay area have been lost to development and contamination. This would be a very cool thing. In the case of Fremont and Newark, uh, I think some of this may be coming from some of the salt ponds that, uh, that are down there. They could certainly be opened up and you could restore marshes. I know over on the Redwood City side, there's some effort along the, along the same lines. I know my dad was able to tell me while driving across the Dumbarton Bridge about how they used to go back. Uh, they used to go out in the 1930s and, and fish in the southern part of San Francisco Bay. And I think that... Uh, uh, with all the contamination that took place from World War II on, that that stopped. Like I said, it'd be very cool if that were to come back. Let's see, other good news over on the coast here, UC Davis's Bodega Marine Laboratory recently achieved the first successful captive spawning of the endangered white abalone. That's the first, uh, first spawning in nearly a decade. And this may represent the white abalone's last chance at avoiding extinction. It's horrifying to note that uh, the white abalone experienced a drastic population decline caused by overfishing. And currently males and females are spread so far apart they have little or no chance to reproduce successfully. Sperm doesn't meet egg. Back in 2001, the white abalone became the first marine invertebrate to be listed as an endangered species. Scientists now believe they are no longer reproducing in the wild. To solve this problem, the Bodega Marine Laboratory captive breeding program for white abalone was started up in 2010. They currently have about 60 adult abalone in captivity. Boy, we sure wish them the best in this. There's also some good news uh, in the perennial battle to reduce antibiotic use in meat, something we've gotten on the, uh, the stump about many times here. But a um, piece in the LA Times by Russ Parson says as follows, make no mistake about it, the FDA's decision to encourage reductions in the use of antibiotics in livestock production is a very big deal. Granted, it doesn't go as far as many advocates would prefer. It relies on voluntary measures by the drug and livestock industries, but it's an important first step in the debate that has been too long stalled. Said Russ Parsons, in case you missed Thursday morning's article by my colleague Dave Pearson, 
At issue is what is known as subtherapeutic dosing of antibiotics to otherwise healthy animals. The practice, for reasons that are not clear, results in faster weight gain for those animals, meaning they can be butchered earlier with much less money spent on feed. We refer you to this little blurb by Mr. Parsons, as well as that piece by David Pearson in the LA Times. The Pearson piece quotes the Animal Health Institute, which represents drug makers, as saying that uh, this move would help dispel the notion that the meat industry uses antibiotics widely and irresponsibly. Yes, they can dispel that notion by stopping doing it. All right, we're going to quote from New Scientist quite a bit in the next few minutes. Uh, the, the two articles in particular have just floored me. The first of the flooring pieces is this one. Piece by Linda Geddes in the December 7th New Scientist notes that memories can be passed down through generations. Although we should qualify that a bit. Note of the article... If a particular smell makes you uneasy, but you don't know why, perhaps you should ask your grandparents. Mice, whose fathers or even grandfathers have learned to associate the smell of cherry blossom with an electroshock, become more jumpy in the presence of the same odor and respond to lower concentrations than in normal mice. This work provides some of the best evidence yet that memories or developed traits can be inherited. Previous studies have hinted that stressful events can affect the behavior or metabolism of future generations, probably through chemical changes to the DNA that can turn genes off or on, known as epigenetics. But this kind of research is complicated by the fact that many genes control one behavior or met metabolic disease. So if you're trying to figure out which one's relevant, that's like looking for a needle in a haystack. But notes the piece, smell is a little different. Individual odors bind to specific receptors on the olfactory bulb which is the interface between the nose and brain. Acetophenone, for example, which smells like cherry blossom, binds to receptor M71. Researcher at Emory University noted that since we know the gene encoding this receptor, we can look at it and the haystack becomes smaller. Anyway, the idea that uh, the grandfather mouse's reaction to a smell can be inherited by the grand grandson mouse is pretty interesting. We'll have to take a look at this in a little more detail in the future. The other flabbergasting piece comes from the December 14th issue of our favorite science magazine, New Scientist. A piece by Catherine Brahick notes the following. The same 19 microbes are found throughout the Earth's crust from Canada to Indonesia, most likely living at the very limits of life. The piece notes that on the surface, different places are home to different organisms, even if the conditions are similar. Antarctica has penguins, but the Arctic has polar bears. A species can only spread widely if it can travel freely. Researchers at Michigan State University said it's easy to understand how fish and birds might be similar, even though they're oceans apart, but it challenges the imagination to think of nearly identical microbes 16,000 kilometers apart in the cracks of hard rock. The researcher, Matt Shrink, is part of a global team probing depths up to two kilometers beneath the surface. They use mine shafts, wells, and drilling rigs scattered around the world. And surprisingly, there seems to be a core group of microbes that appears again and again in all of these different environments. One possible explanation is a pretty radical idea. It's noted that many of the organisms were found in serpentine minerals. These form under conditions similar to the ones that may have prevailed when life first started 4 billion years ago. He said the microbes could have evolved in a similar primordial habitat than been carried around the globe by plate tectonics. 
These results imply a commonality of colonization of the planet's subsurface, agreed Barbara Sherwood-Lawler of the University of Toronto in Canada. That is a pretty screwy idea. We'll follow up on that one in 2014 as well. Actually, there's a third item that's, uh, that surfaced of late that I, I think is pretty mind-blowing. Evidently, vast reserves of fresh water have been discovered beneath the seabed of continental shelves off Australia, China, North America, and South America. This, of course, is a potentially valuable resource for coastal cities needing to alleviate water shortages or combat drought. The findings come from new analyses of seafloor water studies conducted for oil and gas exploration. The total volume of these untapped reserves is estimated to be 120,000 cubic miles, described as 100 times greater than the amount we've extracted from the Earth's subsurface in the past century since 1900. How'd the hell that fresh water get down there? Well, Australian hydrologist Vincent Post told ScienceDaily.com that the reserves were formed hundreds of thousands of years ago when the sea levels were much lower. Much of the ocean floor was dry land. Rainwater seeped into the ground, which filled up the water table, which was then later sealed off by protective layer of clay and sediment and covered as the oceans rose. Scientists say the water could be tapped by drilling and its salinity is low enough that it could be converted readily into potable water. By 2025, two-thirds of the world's population will no longer have a secure water supply, according to the UN. And that same issue of New Scientists has another pretty hair-raising piece. It's rather provocative, given our uh, current uh, technologic um, climate here on Earth. The article is entitled Fracking Hell by Colin Barras and postulates that the Great Dying, more formally known as the Permian-Triassic End or the End-Permian Extinction, may have resulted from methane, the gas which we are currently liberating from deep in the Earth's crust by these fracking technologies. Well, apparently, if uh, the theory of some scientists uh, is borne out, it could well be that either a meteor impact or our volcanic eruptions, which took place in Siberia, these, they believe there are two events about this time, They've been able to date two, two events to about this time of the extinction, uh, an asteroid impact, and this massive um, episode of volcanism with the mass extinction. So if either event came over a layer of, uh, of, of shale or mudstone under which there was a large deposit of methane, you could then release massive amounts of this very efficient greenhouse gas to basically bake the earth for a while. We do think... This is what happened at the end of the uh, time of the dinosaurs. This first extinction we're talking about brought about the time of our famous uh, terrible lizards. And and we're pretty sure that it wasn't just uh, the heat of the impact and all the tsunamis and fires generated around the earth that, uh, that killed off the dinosaurs, but also a period of acid rain and climate disruption that took place from probably uh, all that limestone rock in Yucatan being liberated and turned into CO2. The impact, by the way, that, uh, that they're suspicious of related to the Permian extinction is a lot smaller one that took out the dinosaurs, but they note that uh, in its case it may have released a lot more methane, which is, of course, a more efficient uh, greenhouse gas. Very curious stuff. There's an especially curious bit of detective work that um, is associated with this idea. Back in the early 1980s, health authorities in China became aware that cases of lung cancer not associated with smoking 
were 20 times higher in parts of Yunnan province in the south of the country. A likely source of the problem was identified. The combustion of coal and cast iron stoves kept inside without adequate ventilation. This released potentially carcinogenic polyaromatic hydrocarbons. That didn't seem to answer the question necessarily, though, because they burn coal in other parts of China and people don't have the same rate of cancer. So someone looked at the, the coal in question to find out that uh, down in Yunnan, it has tiny, sharp grains of silica, which have recently been identified as a possible carcinogen. British geologists think they, they know how it got there. The coal dates the very latest stages of the Permian era. It would have been peat during the end Permian mass extinction. During the formation of the vast Siberian volcanic region around that time, gases released in the atmosphere made rainwater more acidic. This dissolved surface rock, leaving the groundwater unusually rich in bits of silica. This eventually made its way into the coal. Thus, it may well be there's a geologic basis for certain Chinese lung cancers, which link it to this mass extinction more than 250 million years ago. By the way, I don't think we reported uh, on this last February. I've been sitting on this, uh, this article ever since. But uh, scientists trying to pin down the idea that it was that Chicxulub crater impact in Yucatan that killed off the dinosaurs. They're getting, well, it's a hard thing to prove definitively beyond all doubt, but they're getting closer. In trying to date the crater to the time of the, uh, the end of the dinosaurs, uh, they were within a couple hundred thousand years. Uh, in, in the past, but by using high-precision radiometric dating analysis of the debris kicked up by the impact, they now think that the KT event and that Chicxulub collision happened at no more than 33,000 years apart. In fact, they think that they've got it narrowed down to, to within 11,000 years at this point. Now, when they started, the error bars in these events were plus or minus a million years, so we're getting closer. And uh, speaking of impacts uh, taking place from possible comets or large asteroids, Mars appears to be in the crosshairs of a comet that's going to pass next fall within 173,000 kilometers of the Martian surface. That is less than half the distance between the Earth and the Moon. It's felt that our Curiosity rover um, will probably not be at risk from the meteor shower, which scientists say could potentially involve millions of meteors per hour smacking the Martian atmosphere, but uh, who knows? The comet is called C-2013A1. It's also known, fortunately, as Comet Sighting Spring. It's noted that uh, the dust from the comet burning up in the Martian atmosphere may put on quite a brilliant show for our Opportunity and Curiosity rovers, which are still lumbering about on the surface of the red planet. We hope so. There was some thought when this comet was discovered that it might actually impact Mars. I, I guess they've eliminated that possibility. But uh, I hope that doesn't happen for the sake of the rovers. But for the Martian orbiters looking down to see a, a comet impacting on the surface, man, what a ringside seat that would be for a Chicxulub-type event. And speaking of Mars, the findings of the Curiosity rover in the uh, Gale Crater made Discover Magazine's top science story of the year. The scientists at, uh, at JPL driving the Curiosity rover around are, are convinced that they have found evidence that a large freshwater lake existed on Mars billions of years ago. In fact, it was there 
about the time that uh, life was emerging on Earth, about 3.5 billion years ago. At that time, we know Mars was warm and wet, not like the cold, dry place it is today. Now, when you kind of segue back to that previous story about serpentine rocks and microbes deep in the Earth's crust being everywhere, perhaps having been there for billions of years, well, it just makes that possibility that we're going to go to Mars one day and actually find life just a little more likely. 30 years ago, people would have said the odds of that, based on the Viking landers not finding inorganic molecules, was probably a million to one shot. But uh, right now, I'm not sure what the smart money is on this. Uh, what Jimmy the Greek Snyder would, would say the chances of life on Mars are. But I think bookmakers here at Radio Parallax are giving the odds at like one in four. How's that? Speaking of life in other places, uh, item number 56 in Discover Magazine's 100 Top Science Stories indicates that... Uh, that Europa, the moon of Jupiter, which we know has an ocean below the surface, evidently has magnesium sulfate on its surface, which welled up from the ocean below. You can go buy magnesium sulfates in your local pharmacy. They're known as Epsom salts. This tells scientists that uh, the oceans underneath um, the ice crust of Europa is certainly interacting with the rock deep below it. Stay tuned for more on that one. All right, we've got a boatload of science topics still in front of me, but, but we do have to take a break, so let's, let's do that. But before we leave, I would like to note the cover story from that New Scientist December 14th issue we've been quoting was titled Forgotten Antibiotics, subtitled Rediscovering the Secret of Killing Bugs Without Drugs. And although we don't have time to go into the article today, we would note that these two miracle things that one can do to kill bugs without drugs consist of fresh air and sunshine. Now there's a couple of radical concepts. Anyway, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. we got more things to talk about. <laughs> 